You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Good morning. Let's. Uh, I hope you've had a, a happy Easter so far, and uh, enjoyed staying at home uh, just for a change, a bit of variety. Um, I trust uh, this morning there'll be a word from the Lord for all of us that uh, that can uh, help us uh, through this time. So let's start with a, a prayer, shall we? We'll pray for those that are uh, uh, on the front line specifically of uh, fighting against this virus. Father, while we're all locked up in our homes to stay safe from this virus, we pray for those who are on the front lines of the battle against it. We pray for doctors, nurses, ambos, police, fireys, chemists, all those who are in contact with it every day. Would you keep them safe, Lord, safe from catching the virus themselves, safe from burnout, safe from fatigue, safe from anxiety, safe from depression, they truly are the modern-day heroes in this war. And we pray for the scientists that are working on the vaccines and cures. Would you give them breakthroughs, Lord? We pray for those in other service industries, shop assistants, delivery drivers, and others that are in regular contact with a lot of people. And we pray for those who are suffering at the moment or grieving the loss of loved ones. We pray for comfort, for peace, for healing, and most of all, Lord, we pray that you'll make yourself known in this nation as the loving, gracious, caring God that you are. Amen. So welcome to Resurrection Sunday 2020. For the first time in memory, Easter holidays are cancelled. People are camping in their backyards, as I'm sure you probably saw on the news last night, camping out in their backyards to... Uh, get a break from being cooped up in the house, but also to continue some of their, their family tradition of Easter holidays and Easter campouts. For the first time in modern history in the West, worshippers are not permitted to gather together to celebrate the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But this doesn't mean that Easter loses its significance and that we should go about our secular business as, as usual. Easter is no less important just because church is cancelled. Rather, the cancellation of church services should stir us to miss terribly the privilege of joining together with our brothers and sisters in Christ in triumphant praise and worship and exaltation of the King of Kings, the one who conquered sin and death. These online gatherings are good as far as they go, but they don't measure up to gathering together as one body in the flesh. Because there's nothing that's quite like the sound of many believers lifting up their voices together in joyful adoration and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It stirs me to the depths of my soul, and I'm sure it stirs you too. And sadly, that opportunity is taken from us today. It's taken from us by this coronavirus still, our King is worthy of worship and praise at all times, whether we're sitting on the peak of great times of blessing or plunged into the depths of despair. He is worthy. John the Baptist knew this well. Open your Bibles, if you've got them with you handy, to John's Gospel, Chapter 3, and we'll pick up 
in verse 30, which I think is where we left off last week. John chapter 3, verse 30, tells us that he, that is Jesus Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.30 tells us, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. I've talked a number of times previously and recently about John the Baptist, about the purpose and the focus of his ministry. And that was to point people to Christ. John recognised that he was not to be the centre of attention. Instead, he was a road sign that says, go this way. Just like when you're on a road trip. You remember road trips, don't you? You're not that far removed from going on road trips that you've forgotten about them. But when you see a road sign that points you to the, your destination and then you drive past it, the road sign becomes smaller and smaller in your rear vision mirror and your destination, your destination looms larger and larger in your sight. And so Jesus must increase and we must de decrease, not only because he is worthy, but also because of his origin. Remember how John's Gospel opens. In the chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist wasn't from heaven, though. That's one of the reasons why he said of Jesus that he must increase, but I must decrease. John was only human, just like you and me. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Jesus was both man and he was also God. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature when he took on human flesh. He added humanity to his divinity. Now he is fully human at the same time that he is fully God. John goes on to say in verse 32, He, that is Jesus Christ, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In any court of law, the ones who have the most credibility are the ones who were there to witness firsthand the events. The testimony, testimony of anyone else doesn't carry much weight, for they weren't there to see it. But Jesus 
knows what he's talking about. Not only is he a witness to heaven and the plans of God, but he is the originator of it all. He is the witness. When Jesus comes, though, speaking of heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal damnation, law and grace, punishment and salvation, the very things that he's responsible, no one believes him. No one receives his testimony. It's funny, the scribes and the Pharisees clung so tightly to the words of Moses, who was of the earth. But they refused to listen to the one who was from heaven. They refused to hear what Jesus had to say. And Jesus says to them in a few chapters time, in uh, chapter 5, verse 36, if you want to make notes, that the testimony that I have given is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Everything Moses said, everything Moses wrote, pointed to Christ. Moses was the road sign from the past, just as John the Baptist was a road sign for the present. But they were so caught up with the road sign that they couldn't and wouldn't lift their eyes to see the destination. We modern Christians can sometimes be guilty of something similar. We get so caught up arguing about the finer points of the road sign that we forget to lift our eyes to the beauty, the joy, the pleasure, the delight of the destination in front of us. It is he that must increase. Not our reputations as people of faith, not our standing as scholars of the Bible. Life is not in our words or in our philosophies or in our arguments. Life is in him. In verse 35, John goes on to say, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Father has given all things into the Son's hands. That means life, but it also means death. Whoever believes has eternal life. Life, eternal life, is a present possession. If we believe this eternal life we have now, beginning the moment you believe, but this eternal life should make a few differences in your secular, your earthly life. One author says about this life, do you realise Jesus created laughter? If you're following him, laughter should be a part of your life. Jesus created adventure and beauty, sunsets and sailboats. His people should not be bored. We're told in scripture that God rejoices over us with singing in Zephaniah 3.17. He loves us and enjoys us so much that he can't keep from singing about us. Since that's true, 
How do you explain all the people in church with their arms folded across their chest who looked like they ate some bad guacamole? God thinks you're special enough to sing over, but you don't think he's special enough to sing about. Christians should be the most exuberant, excited, joyful people on the block. Eternal life is not only about what happens sometime in the future. Eternal life is about now. Our faith in Christ should impact our life now. Is a miserable Christian a contradiction in terms? Well, maybe if you're a Christian caught up in a sin that you don't want to forsake and the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on you, then you should be miserable. But better, confess your sin, repent of it, turn back to Christ and embrace life again. In verse 36, John goes on to say, to tell us that obedience is one of the signs of those who have eternal life. John wraps up his chapter with, uh, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This should be a terrifying thought. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Disobedience and eternal punishment are here tied together. And John warns us here that disobedience is a road sign. It's a road sign that announces dead end. It's a road sign that says dangerous conditions ahead. It's a road sign that declares all who continue on this path face certain destruction. I recall in the early days of my Christian faith, around 30-odd years ago, that there was a bit of a controversy at the time known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. At its heart was the question of what constituted salvation. Can we accept Christ as Saviour without necessarily accepting Christ as Lord? As I understand the, the debate, the argument from one side was that the person could pray the sinner's prayer to accept Christ as Saviour, and the person would, from that point, be a Christian assuming, of course, they'd prayed the prayer with sincerity. But then at some time in the future, they may choose to make Christ their Lord and then begin to obey him. In the interim period, there may or may not be evidence of a desire to obey him. But they didn't believe that their salvation was dependent on making Christ as Lord of their life. Rather, it depended on accepting him as Saviour. Now, the other camp, of course, couldn't agree with that. Their argument was that if a person is genuinely saved, they will make Christ their Lord also and begin to obey him. However, imperfectly, that obedience may work out. Now, it's important to make clear that the Saviour side didn't believe that the mere repetition of the words of the sinner's prayer would save you. And the Lordship side weren't proclaiming salvation by works. It's much more nuanced than that. But in a nutshell, that's what the Lordship Salvation controversy was all about. No doubt it still rages in some circles, but I don't recall hearing much about it in recent years. I suspect both camps have settled into their convictions and now largely ignore each other. So the question is, what does the Bible say about it? Peter wrote, for example, in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So from Peter's perspective, Jesus Christ is both Lord and Saviour. It's not a matter of choosing one or the other. Interestingly, the New Testament doesn't talk very much about Christ as Saviour, even though that's what Easter is all about. But it does call him Lord an awful lot. Now the last verse of John chapter 3 is important, I think, in this debate. The last verse says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Did you notice the contrasts in that verse? John doesn't contrast whoever believes with whoever does not believe, as we might have expected. Rather, he contrasts whoever believes with whoever does not obey. The logical contrast is between believing and not believing. So why then does John contrast believing with not obeying? If we jump back a number of verses, I think we'll see a verse that sheds some light on this. Back to John chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That verse seems to be a parallel to verse 36. And I think John is telling us that obedience is one of the indicators of saving faith. It is a road sign that your faith is genuine. If you believe, you will naturally want to obey. Now, don't get the idea that I'm suggesting that every failure to obey is a sign that you're not a Christian. We live in the period that's sometimes called the now and the not yet. Nothing we do is perfect. One day it will be, but not yet. God is still working out his plans for us, little by little and bit by bit. Things that are true spiritually of us right now are still being worked out bit by bit in us in the earthly realm. Christians are declared righteous when they put their trust in Jesus Christ, but they are also slowly and gradually being made righteous, that is, being conformed to the image of Christ, as Romans 8.29 puts it. This conformity to the image of Christ is not instantaneous when we believe. You might have noticed that in your own life. God works it into us usually slowly and imperceptibly. We can rarely look back two days or two weeks or even two months and see change. It might only be when we look back two years or 10 years or 50 years that we notice we've become more like our Lord and Saviour. But the important thing is that we have a heart to obey, a desire. We want to obey him. And therefore we look for ways to reflect him rather than rebel against him. We come to the light. That's one of the signs that our faith is genuine. Building on this back in uh, verses 19 and 20 of John chapter 3, John said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Now don't get the idea that I'm suggesting that obedience to God will save you. If that was how we must be saved, we would all be lost. For none of us is able to obey. 
and to obey perfectly and to obey without failure and to obey from birth right through to death. Rather, it's by putting our trust in the one who did obey perfectly that we're able to be rescued. Jesus Christ did obey God's law perfectly and he did it as a representative of the human race so that whoever puts their trust in him will be saved. So what John is telling us here is not that we're saved by obedience, but that obedience is a sign that we're saved. The New Testament makes plenty of references to obedience and disobedience. Let me just give you two of them. In Romans 1 verse 5, it says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And 1 Peter 4.17 tells us, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? A disobedience is bad enough in itself. It's a rejection of the one who created us the one who has the right to demand of us whatever he wants. But the ultimate consequence of continued disobedience and rejection of Christ is a fate worse than death. The wrath of God remains on him, and it remains on him never to be lifted off. People who reject Jesus Christ often like to imagine hell as a place where they'll be able to party with all their friends, free of all moral limitations. I'm sure you've heard people say that, and some of us have said that sort of thing ourselves in the past. They are, and we were, tragically and terrifyingly misguided. There will be no party in hell. There will be no pleasure. There will be no fun. There will be no friendship. There will be no comfort or peace or rest. There is only the fierce and fearful and furious punishment and wrath of God. His wrath poured out for all eternity. There is everlasting torment in the lake of fire. Plenty of people like to speculate about hell, about whether it's real and about whether it's everlasting. But there is only one whose information about hell is reliable. He who comes from the earth is above all, it says in verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus Christ is the only one whose testimony about heaven and hell, sin and salvation, God and man is reliable. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. When your friends tell you hell will be party time, how can they be so sure? Have they been there? Did they create it? Would you reject the testimony of the only one who knows for sure in the vain hope that your friends are right? I hope not. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's one of the reasons why we're celebrating Easter Sunday today. He is above all. It's one of the, the, uh, the reasons that the evidence of the empty tomb is that he, he could not be held down. Death could not hold him down because he is above all. 
His resurrection is proof that his sacrifice, the merciless execution and death on the cross, achieved exactly what he came to do, to bring mercy to us. He is above all. On that cross, he defeated sin and death and Satan. He is above all. And there is none like him. He is above all. Today, I hope and pray that you will put your trust in him and celebrate his resurrection with me. For he is above all. And to join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, today we celebrate the resurrection of your son from death and the grave. We rejoice, Lord, that the full penalty for our sin was paid by him on that cross all those years ago and that the benefits are ours for eternity. We pray for those who have yet to know this glorious truth and we ask that you open their hearts and their minds to turn to you in faith and to find peace, security and rest in you. And we pray this in the name of your resurrected and glorified Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next week, God willing, I'll be looking at the beginning beginning of John chapter 4, uh, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. Uh, I hope you'll take the time to read that during the week in preparation and uh, pray for me as I prepare so that uh, God will have a word for all of us through it. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.